This morning we're in our second series, our second message in the series about the fundamental truths, they're called the fundamentals. And G.K. Chesterton, who was a late 19th and early 20th century Christian apologist, wrote this. He said, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. That's true for the theological subject we're going to tackle today because we're going to be talking primarily about the Trinity. Several weeks ago, we started this series of messages. We started by talking about the first of the fundamental truths, which is the inspiration of Scripture. Today, we're covering a doctrine entitled the one true God, and it can be succinctly stated this way. The one true God has revealed himself as the eternally self-existent I am, the creator of heaven and earth and the redeemer of mankind. He has further revealed himself as embodying the principles of relationship and association as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps, especially in modern church, when we come to a service, we typically look for something that is quick and easy and helps us to feel better. But often the things that are quick and easy are just as easily forgotten. Doctrine and seeking to understand the deep truths about God are more sustaining over the long term, even though they may be more difficult initially. We have a fish tank at home, and we typically feed those fish once in the morning and once in the evening. We drop some pellets in the water, and the fish swarm around, and they gobble up those pellets as quickly as they can, and then it's gone. They don't have any more to eat. It does not last very long for them. And if we forget to feed them, they go hungry. However, if we're going away for a few days... We have a vacation feeder that we can drop in the water and the fish swarm around it and they get nothing from it immediately. They can't get anything from it and so they quickly lose interest. But over the course of the next several days, that little block begins to release food that will sustain those fish over a longer period of time. Forgive me for likening doctrine to fish feeders, but it is a bit like that. It may not appear as initially interesting as a clever acronym in a sermon or a preachy saying that you really like, but that you just as quickly forget. Instead, doctrine provides food that releases slowly in your life over a long period of time and sustains you. Not only that, it can help to protect you from the deceit of the enemy, and it can help you more deeply experience the truth of God and his promises in your life. And today's doctrine is a really big one, much bigger than can be covered in a single message because we're talking about the one true God. Who is God? What is God like? What can we know about him? The Bible isn't too concerned about trying to prove that God exists. It just assumes his existence from the beginning. Throughout history, the vast majority of cultures and people, including the vast majority of people today, have believed in some kind of deity. In fact, most people in the history of the world have believed in multiple gods. So much of the Bible is concerned with the proclamation that there's just one true God, and the revelation of who he is. And while we can't know everything about God, he does want us to have an accurate understanding of him as far as we can. At the very beginning, God's existence is assumed and we are told that he's the creator of everything. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
from this, we know that God is creator. This means that he existed before the world and that he has the power to create everything in the world and to sustain everything in the world. It's also a clue that there is just one true God. Israel, God's people, were surrounded by nations who worshipped the sun and the stars and the moon and who believed that there were a variety of gods in control of parts of creation like water or storms or fertility. But Genesis 1-1 begins to reveal that there is just one God deserving to be worshipped as the true God. And the scriptures go on to reveal what this one God is like. Some of the characteristics or attributes of God are totally foreign to us. These are known as incommunicable attributes. They're things that God is that we are not and cannot be. And we have to move quickly, but consider who God is in light of some of these attributes. Independence. God needs nothing and no one else. I don't mean freedom in the sense of we talk about it in the United States or something like that. I mean that he does not depend on anyone else. We depend on him for our existence, but he does not depend on us. We cannot exist without him. He exists without us. Acts 17, 24 to 25 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is totally independent of you. Immutability. God is unchanging in his nature and perfection. Change indicates a need for growth or improvement. God needs no improvement. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Speaking of having no end, God is eternal. God has no beginning, and he has no end. The Bible says that we were created and we will live forever, but we are not eternal because we had a moment where we came into existence. God did not. He has always been. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Omnipresence, God has no spatial dimensions. He is not confined to one place at one time like we are. He is completely present at every point in space, and yet he can act differently in different places. Psalm 139, 7 to 10, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God has attributes that are totally unlike ours, but he also has some attributes that he shares with us, that because we are made in his image, he has communicated to us, though not completely. He is perfectly these things, and he shares them partially with us. To be created in God's image means that God made us to exercise his authority in his physical creation, and that takes place through the attributes he has shared with us. We can't consider all of them, but think about these. Spirituality, God is spirit. Knowledge, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Power, God is omnipotent. He has all power. Faithfulness, truthfulness, will, mercy, grace, patience, holiness, justice, wrath, and love. 
Each of these could easily constitute its own sermon, maybe its own series of sermons. They're revealed throughout Scripture, both directly in passages that describe God's attributes, but just as importantly, they're revealed through descriptions of God's actions by which we come to understand what His faithfulness is or what His mercy looks like in action. Now, we have a tendency to key in on certain attributes of God. One example of this is the famous Christian refrain that I'm sure you know. If you know it, you can participate in it with me. It goes like this. God is good. And all the time. Right? We know that one. We, we, we affirm the goodness of God. But we could also remind ourselves something like this. God is holy. And all the time. Or we could do this, that God is right to express his wrath against sin. And all the time, I mean, okay, God is right to express his wrath against sin. Or we could do, God is love. And all the time, it would be good for us to meditate not just on one attribute of God, that he's good, but on his many attributes as we read his word so that we can really know who he is and honor him more fully. And even beyond that, since God shares or communicates some of these attributes with us as his children, we can become imitators of God in our lives and share his nature. Now that's a pretty profound thing to say. In fact, if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't dare say it that you can share God's nature. But listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says that we are partakers of or participants in the divine nature. That's incredible. God shares his nature with us. He conforms us to his character. Ephesians 4.24 says that we should put on the new self, which is being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to be clear. The scripture is not saying that you become a little God, or that we become gods, or, or something like that. Rather, what it is saying is that through God's promises, we are becoming what God intended us to be, children who are image bearers in that we imitate his character and we express his authority. And that leads us to the second part of our doctrinal statement for this morning. He has further revealed himself as embodying the principles of relationship and association as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the redeemer of all mankind, and his plan of redemption, uh, he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is known as the Trinity, a word that means triunity or three in one. And the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but it's a term that helps to express a concept that is taught in the scripture. There is one God with three persons, whereas the hymn you might be familiar with puts it, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. 
The Trinity is one of the notoriously difficult Christian doctrines to understand. Most people, uh, or not most, but many people who are not believers mock it, but often their mockery is based on ignorance or misunderstanding. You'll sometimes hear people ask if Jesus was praying to himself or, if, or they'll make the claim that it's contradictory to say that there is one God but three persons. And there are several things that if we're going to understand the Trinity as best we can that we need to address. First, does the Bible actually talk about the Trinity? Does it reveal God in three persons? Second, is it contradictory to talk about three in one? Third, what's the best way to comprehend the Trinity? And finally, should you even care about the Trinity anyway? What difference does it make? And before we jump in, I want to say that you should care because of what we read from 2 Peter earlier. You can partake of God's divine nature, and the Trinity reveals something deep to us about God's nature. So let's start with this. Where is the Trinity found in the Bible? The doctrine of the Trinity is present but veiled in the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament was concerned with convincing the Jews that there was one true God and that he alone deserved their worship. They shouldn't worship idols or other gods. The most famous passage expressing this truth was Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That said, there are references in the Old Testament that hint at the idea that God is three persons. For instance, there's a figure that shows up over and over again in the Old Testament known as the angel of the Lord. Sometimes that angel gets referred to as God or the Lord directly. Or in some passages, the angel of the Lord receives worship, which typically in Scripture, angels refuse to do. For instance, when the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, it says both that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and that God called to him from the midst of that bush. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, Gideon was petrified because he equated seeing the angel of the Lord to seeing the Lord himself. Many believe that these appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament are actually appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus showing up before he was born of the Virgin Mary. Now there are other clues in the Old Testament as well, such as the descriptions of the Holy Spirit's work, which point toward a person and not just a force. For instance, Isaiah 63.10 states that God's people's rebellion grieved the Holy Spirit, a power a force can't be grieved, but a person can be grieved. What was veiled in the Old Testament, though, is revealed in the New. And while the word Trinity may not be present, the concept is clear. It's clear in passages that list the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alongside one another as equals. Like the one Pastor Camilla Grace read earlier from Matthew 28, 19, that we ought to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's clear in passages that have all three members of the Trinity present at the same time, like at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, 21 to 22. It says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We have the voice of the Father, we have Jesus being baptized, we have the Holy Spirit descending on him in the form of a dove, all three at the same time. 
It's revealed in Paul's greeting to the church in Corinth, where he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And it's clear in how Jesus himself talked and prayed in his relationship to the Father and the Spirit, as we'll see in just a moment from John chapters 14 through 16. But first, I want to address the issue of whether it's contradictory to talk about three in one. Is it contradictory to think that God can be three in one? If, if you were talking about being both three and one of the same thing or of the same category, that would be contradictory. For instance, if I were to tell you that I am holding one Bible and I am holding three Bibles, that would be crazy because those are two of the same thing and they're contradictory claims. Both cannot be true at the same time. If you have three cups of coffee and you say that I have three in one, that's not true, you have three. And even if you pour them all into the same cup, you now just have one cup of coffee. You can't have three and one at the same time of the same kind of thing. Sometimes people will mock the doctrine of the Trinity claiming that it's contradictory. There's a Christian YouTuber that I like to watch whose channel is called Red Pen Logic, and he addresses social media posts and TikTok videos that attack the Christian faith. And if you're into social media, I encourage you to follow Red Pen Logic. If you're not, tell your kids to, because they are, and they're probably watching TikTok videos and YouTube videos that contradict their faith. And this guy will help them answer those, those questions in a way that is fun, but is also incredibly deep and thoughtful. So, in a recent video, he addressed a meme that has been floating around for a long time that was made to mock the Trinity. It was a picture of Jesus praying, and I think I've got it. It says this, are you there, God? It's me, you. And the point of this is, who was Jesus praying? If Jesus is God, how can he be praying to God? How does that make any sense at all? But Red Pin Logic pointed out that this is a confusion of categories. It assumes that when we as Christians say that God is three in one, we are saying that God is both one being and three beings. But that's not the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, we mean that there is one God in three persons. So what's the difference between being and person? Well, there are tons of things that have being, aren't there? If something exists, it has being. Trees exist, and so trees have being. There are certain characteristics that we can use to describe what a tree is compared to something else, say, compared to a car. So trees have being. So do the pews you're sitting on. Those pews have being. But trees and pews aren't persons, are they? If they are, we probably shouldn't cut them down, make them into pews, and sit on them. That's not very nice. They're not persons. They're beings, but they're not persons. Trees and pews are example of things that have one being but no person. A tree is one being with no person. You could use me as another example. I'm a human being. I have the characteristics necessary to fit in the category of human being, and while I'm a human being, I'm also a particular human being. I'm Stephen. I'm not only a what, I'm a who. A tree has one what, but no who. I have one what and one who. I'm a human being and I'm Pastor Stephen, to be precise. And while it might be difficult for us to understand, God is one being, but he has three persons. He's one what? God. He's three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is completely God. 
Jesus has all the attributes that we talked about that God has earlier in this message. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's loving. He's faithful. He's just and all the rest. Similarly, the Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's angry at sin. He's righteous. And he's obviously holy. He is the Holy Spirit after all. All three, Father, Son, and Spirit, equally share all the attributes of God, and yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is neither Father nor Son. And while it might be difficult for us to wrap our minds around this, it's not contradictory, because we do not believe that there is one God and three gods, nor that there is one person and three persons, but that there is one God in three persons. So what's the best way to understand this? How do we think about this? And, and, and what, what do we do to, to kind of wrap our minds around it? Usually when we find something difficult to understand, we grapple for an analogy. What is this like that we can compare it to that's gonna help shed light on this difficult concept? So what analogy can we use to understand the Trinity? None, actually. Every analogy we might try has significant problems. Consider some of the most common analogies used to try to describe the Trinity. Maybe you've heard that the Trinity is like a shamrock or like a three-leaf clover. It's one clover, but it has three leaves. But this leaves us, pun intended, with a false understanding called partialism. Each leaf is part of the clover, but no leaf is the whole clover. And what we mean when we say that God is three in one is that Jesus is not part God, but that he is holy God. And so the clover doesn't work because it leaves us with this image of Jesus being part of God or the Holy Spirit being part of God or the Father being part of God, but not each of those three persons being holy God. So it doesn't work. What about a person like, like me, for instance? Well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and there I am with llamas. I mean, I'm, I, I fulfill multiple roles, husband, father, pastor, llama lover, I guess. I mean, I, I do multiple things. So maybe the Trinity is like that. But this doesn't work either because those are merely roles that one person plays. I'm, I can be those things at the same time, but they are just roles of one person. And this is actually an ancient heresy uh, committed by a man named Arius, and we call it Arianism, and it's the idea that there's just one God, and he plays the part of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at different times. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. If that were true, then the meme would be correct. How could Jesus pray to the Father if actually he is the Father? He doesn't just play different roles, and so the image of a human being doesn't work as well. What about the sun? Maybe you've heard this one. It's, it's like the sun. You've got the star, you've got the light that it produces, and you've got the heat that it produces, but this leads to another ancient heresy, which asserts that the Son and the Holy Spirit are not God in the same sense as the Father, but that they emanate from or are created by the Father. In fact, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They, they think something like this, and this is not the teaching of Scripture. Because as John 1.1 says about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He didn't emanate from God. He's not a creation of God, like light and heat are of a star. He is God, always has been, and always will be. Same with the Holy Spirit, and same with the Father. What about an egg? Surely an egg's a good analogy. After all, my Sunday school teacher brought one to class and told me this egg represents the Trinity. Surely the egg is a good one. But again, 
This is partialism because the shell is not the yoke. It doesn't share the properties or attributes of the yoke. It's hard. The yoke is soft. And neither of them are the egg white. And so again, each is only part. And so it doesn't really represent God. And in the end, there's no good analogy. Probably the best way we, the best we can do to understand the Trinity is refer to some of the church's creeds or statements of belief. A very, very ancient example is the Athanasian Creed, and it speaks about the Trinity like this. We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. So we neither blend the who's nor do we divide the what. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. I'm sorry if that disappoints you and you prefer the egg, but I like that language because it sounds a little higher than an egg to me. Comparing God to an egg was always a little chintzy anyway. Why should you care though? I can't give you a great analogy to wrap your head around this. And really, would we want a God who can be compared to an egg? I mean, that would be a little cheap, it would seem. So why should we care about this? Why should we care about the Trinity? The fact that Christians can't find an analogy after talking about this for the last 2,000 years may be frustrating, but it shouldn't be surprising. We can say that God's nature isn't contradictory, but should we really expect that we will be able to fully grasp the depth and intricacy of God? Would it be a good thing if we could do that? You might be thinking, if we can't grasp this easily, if you're not going to send me home with some brief preachy saying that makes me feel good, why should I care? Why bother thinking about this? Well, as I alluded earlier, it's worth thinking about because doctrine is the kind of food that will sustain you over a lifetime rather than candy that gives you a quick hit but leaves you hungry before dinner time. You can meditate on the depths, the beauty, and the provision of the Trinity and the character of God for the rest of your life. You will never get to the bottom of it and you won't run out of life-sustaining spiritual provision from it. And here's part of that provision. You should think about it because Jesus invites you into it. The big idea this morning was that you can partake of God's divine nature. And as we know God more, we grow in our likeness to him, and even more, we grow in his character, and it can be displayed through us. Listen to Jesus' invitation to us from John chapter 15, verses 5 to 11. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus invites us into a life that flows from him, that bears the fruit that comes from the Father, that experiences not only his own love, but also his own joy. In other words, Jesus invites us into the fellowship of God, of the Trinity, 
Not only that, but jump down to his promise in John 16, 7. He says this regarding the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Jesus invites us into this relationship. And over and over again in the New Testament, you will find the apostles talking about how all three persons of the Trinity are involved in relationship with you. If you go to Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages, we learn there that the Father loves us, that he has demonstrated his love for us through the Son, and that he has applied his love to us by the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in our lives to produce the character of Jesus and to produce his own kind of of love within our lives. God invites us into the fellowship of the Trinity. Jesus invites you into that kind of relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in your salvation and all will be involved in your life. The spiritual life that we have as believers flows out of that fellowship. Meditating on God's characteristics as three in one will bring greater depth to our understanding of what a relationship with God is supposed to be and who we are in Christ. I'm sure that there are many more, but think of these three truths that you can apply to your life regarding the Trinity. Think of how it impacts our lives and the implications of the Trinity for us. First, you should value your relationship with God. Now that might seem obvious, but it's also easy to forget. Jesus warned us that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness deceitfulness of riches could choke out his word. And sometimes we fall into routine religion rather than remembering that God wants a relationship with us that provides life and growth. God's very nature is relational. He doesn't invite us into a religion if what you mean by religion is just a set of rules and practices by which you appease him. God does not want to be appeased. He doesn't need anything from you. You cannot satisfy him. You cannot appease him. God does not want to be appeased. But he is by nature relational. And he created you to depend on him and to be in a relationship with him. Have you been focused on your relationship with God? Or have the cares of life choked out the fellowship you have with him? Have you been deceived into thinking that Going through the motions will satisfy and appease God. Or is your heart actually in seeking fellowship with him? If you realize that your connection with God is not what it should be, it's it's mostly comprised of routine and ritual that your heart is not in. If you follow religion because you feel like you're supposed to or only because you think it makes you morally superior to others, if it's just traditional for you, if it's a political thing for you, then I want to challenge you to meditate on the Trinity. Because if God is by nature relational, And if the scripture invites you, if Jesus invites you into a relationship in which you actively and willfully rely on him and receive his love and the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, do you really think that a bit of religion will do the trick for your life? It won't. Meditate on the Trinity and know that God desires relationship with those he calls. Second, you should seek unity 
Another deep truth that the Trinity teaches us is unity. There's one Lord, there's one Son, there's one Holy Spirit, and these three persons are one being, God. We have all been chosen by the Father through our faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have all been filled with the same Spirit, the Scripture says, over and over again. And since the three persons of the Trinity are always perfectly united, it stands to reason that what God desires for the church is unity as well. Of course, this is a broad desire, encompassing the church throughout time and space, but it also applies to the local church. It's easy for people to clamor for unity in the church big C, and hard to live unified in the church little c. It's easy to clamor that the worldwide church should be unified. We should be more united as a church. It's easy to say that, It's hard to be united with your brothers and sisters in a local context. Too often offense, unforgiveness, personalities, and selfishness stand in the way of real unity. One word that could help us with this is submission. Ephesians 5.21 says that we should practice submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And when we submit to one another, we put others before ourselves. We recognize the authority that God has placed in our lives and in the church, and we listen. We seek to build up rather than to tear down, and we speak so as to bring people together rather than to tear them apart. We work together toward the mission and vision that God gives, and we prioritize the body of Christ over our own autonomy. Do you value unity? Are you connected enough with the body of Christ locally to be unified? As you meditate on the Trinity and the perfect harmony among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened to grasp the common nature we share through Christ and the Holy Spirit with our brothers and sisters. That together we've been baptized into Christ by the same Spirit and we praise the same God, our Father, and so we ought to be unified in that worship and unified in our mission. Trinity reveals the need for relationship. It leads us toward unity. And finally, it demonstrates the deepest kind of love and challenges us to love more deeply. You should grow in love. This is one of the reasons that the doctrine of the Trinity is so, so important. We said earlier that love is one of God's attributes. In fact, the Bible says it this way, God is love, the apostle John said. Love requires an object. I know that our culture is uber fascinated with talking about self-care and self-love, but love for yourself is not what the Bible means when it's talking about love. By definition, when the Bible uses the word love, it's talking about a kind of love that requires someone else to love. Real love is from one person to another person, a being that is not a person, can't love. A rock is a being, it's not a person, so it can't love. A tree, it's a being, it's not a person, so it can't love. And that pew that's holding you up off the ground right now, it doesn't love you. Only persons can love. And real love requires a recipient who is also a person. We may say things like, I love the sunrise, but you can't express that to the sunrise doesn't hear you. Sunrise can't know your love, can't receive your love. You may say that you love music, and while you can practice music, it cannot receive your love. Love is from one person to another person. The Bible says that God 
is love. If that's true, if God is really love, who did God love before he created anything? He couldn't love nothing, since by definition, love requires one person to love another person. So who did God love? The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loved the Father and the Son. This is why the Trinity is so important. Because if God is actually going to be love, if he is love, and he also existed eternally, then he had to have someone to love eternally. And he loved the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three in one. And this means that they don't need your love. Rather, God is love. But it is in the nature of the person who loves to give himself away to others. And so not out of necessity, not because he had some unmet need, but because he is love, God created you so that he could love you and you could love him and you could receive his love. But all of us have rejected God's love. We turn away from his good intentions in our lives. We disobey his commands. We pretend like we can escape out from under his watch. And since he created us to know him and to love him, and since we depend on him, trying to get away from him leads us to a state of spiritual and eventually to physical death. It also leads to his anger with us because of our sin and our rebellion. Because God is not just love, he's also righteous and just. But since God is love, I mean imagine it for a moment if you would. What if God were not love? What if there weren't three in one? What if there was just one person and one God? If he was actually love, he would need to create you. And then when you rebelled against him, what would he do? How would he fix that problem? He couldn't send the son to die for you. Neither could he actually fix the love that was lost by you because he doesn't have that within himself. He wouldn't himself be love for he existed before you without loving anyone. So he wouldn't in his very nature be love. But since you've rejected God's love, but he is love, he was not satisfied to leave you in the place of wrath and of rejection. But instead, because he is love, the scripture tells us he took this step, he made this plan, and he demonstrated this, his love this way. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, when we did not deserve love, when we had not given his love back to him, when we had not responded to his love, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not need my love. God does not need me to worship him. He's not lonely. He's not looking for validation, but he is love. And since he is love, the Father sent the Son to die for me. And when I, by faith, trust my life to his love, he sends the Holy Spirit to apply that love in my life so that I am transformed. And when I think of that love, when I ponder it day by day, when I let it sink into and saturate my life and my thoughts, I'm transformed by his love from glory to glory. And God's love calls you to love. And his love gives you the freedom to love. Because God's love is secure. It's immovable because he is love. Since you didn't earn it, but it flows out of his own character, you don't have to worry that one day he's gonna walk out on you. 
His love isn't like the fickle infatuation of a boyfriend or a girlfriend that walked out of your life. It's not like the love of friends that changes and fails. It's not like the love of a former spouse where you can't figure out what changed, where the love was lost, why they decided to leave. His love is secure because it does not depend on you. Because it's who he is, not who you are. And that's why he saved us. And 1 John 4.19 reveals that we love because he first loved us. Our love for others doesn't flow because we're good people. In fact, most of the time when the world tries to love, it ends up with stuff like we have today, self-love and self-care, rather than caring for oneself by learning to give oneself to God and demonstrate his love. And so the kind of love the world gives is not love that can really give itself to another kind of person, but the kind of love that God secures us with allows us to be free enough and secure enough in his love to love other people. Our love for others flows from his. And sometimes we try to love people because we know that we should or because we want to demonstrate our own kind of goodness. But the Trinity teaches us that God is love and that if we want to truly love others, we should practice sharing the love he has already demonstrated through sending his son. Are you growing in love? Are you becoming more secure in Christ's love? Is your compassion increasing or decreasing? Are you more inclined to look at people and judge them or love them? Are you learning to give more of yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you grieved for those who are lost and do not know the love of God? Meditate on God's love today and receive that love. Know that God loves because it's who he is and so his love is unchanging. Accept God's invitation to know his love and to give his love to other people. Relationship, unity, and love. There are these three reasons at least why the Trinity is so important not only to believe but to meditate on. Many Christians have referred to Psalm 115 verse 8 and its critique of idolatry and noted that you become like what you worship. If you worship yourself, you will be forever turned inward on yourself, lonely and dissatisfied. If you worship money, your worth will go up and down like the stock market. If you worship God as he really is, God in three persons, you will grow in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Your life will take on a fuller image of God's character and you will know his love more and more deeply. You can partake of God's divine nature. And that starts with faith in Christ and it continues through faith. And faith, like love, needs an object. It's no mere feeling. Our faith is in God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has welcomed us into a relationship with him, and as we rest there by faith in him, keeping our eyes on Jesus, meditating on his character and promises, we will become more like the one we worship, and we will experience his love more fully. George, if you'd come back up, and I want to ask if you'd close your eyes for just a moment, because I want to ask two different questions this morning. The first is this. If you've never experienced the love of Jesus, the love of God in your life demonstrated through his son Jesus, you should know this, God loves you. And you might think to yourself, well, of course he does. I'm a really great guy, I'm a really great girl. No, God does not love you because you think you're great. Or you might think to yourself, well, he shouldn't because I'm a really bad guy or I'm a really bad girl. Well, 
Thankfully, God's love is not based on our estimation of ourselves nor on what we've done. God's love is based on the fact that He is love. Because God is love, like I read earlier from Romans chapter 5, He demonstrated that love by sending His Son to die for you. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus today, that relationship doesn't begin by something you try to produce or something you try to accomplish. It begins by faith. That is, you trust Jesus. It means that you trust what you've heard today, that God is love, and that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and today you'd like to experience his love you'd like to know his mercy his grace you'd like to know what it means to experience the peace of God that goes beyond what the world can offer the joy of the Lord that goes beyond what the world can give if you'd like to know salvation in Christ from these things I'm going to ask you to do something simple but so that I can respond and pray with you if that's you you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin that today you want to receive God's love and accept what he's done for you through his son, Jesus. Would you just lift up your hand so that I can pray with you? Is there anybody like that? Thank you, sir. Is there anybody else? You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and you'd like to begin that today by faith in what he's done. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? If you're online and you'd like to respond, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061. Anybody else? I'm going to wait for just one more moment. Don't miss this opportunity because God doesn't guarantee you another one. He's brought you here today so you could hear this, so that you could respond. And so if you don't have that relationship with him in which you know his love and you're secure in him, then I'd encourage you to respond by faith today. Anybody else? I'm going to pray this prayer. This prayer won't save you. I'm just going to help you express faith in Jesus. And if you pray this prayer, if you raise your hand and you pray the prayer for the first time today after service is over, uh, there are going to be some pastors. There will also be some prayer partners at the front who would love to pray with you. We also have a small gift we'd like to give you, uh, something to help you understand where do I go from here? What's the next step I need to take in following Jesus and experiencing his love? But let's start with this. If you raise your hand and you want to give your life to Christ today and believe in him for salvation, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to confess faith in him. And as I pray, you make this prayer your own prayer. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you and I confess that I've done life my own way. I've run from you. I've sinned against you and I've been in rebellion against you. I pray today that you would forgive me. I believe that you love me, and I thank you for that love. I believe that your love means that you sent Jesus, your son, to die for my sin. Thank you for dying for me. I let you have my sin and my past today, and I ask for your forgiveness. But I also believe what your word says, that you raised Jesus from the dead. And today I'm asking that you would unite me with him by faith and give me new life. I want to be in Jesus. I want to know his love. I want to know your presence, Father. So today I ask that you would unite me with Christ and you would make me know your love and know your forgiveness and you would teach me to walk in the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer again, please don't hesitate. Come and see one of our prayer partners or pastors after the service. Church, I want to ask one more question. Perhaps you're here today and one of these things hit the mark in your life relationship, love. Maybe you want to say to the Lord, Lord, I want to receive your love this morning. I want to know your love. Maybe you've not been experiencing that. Maybe you've not been experiencing his love. Maybe you've not been thinking a lot about it and you just want to renew your love for him. You want to ask him to renew the sense of his love in your life. 
I want to just open the altars up freely if our pastors and prayer partners can come and be prepared to pray with people. You don't have to come down and pray with anybody in particular, but if you have a sense that you just want to respond, come and find a place to pray. In fact, even now, would you come and, and just uh, bring to the Lord what it is that's burdening you? Bring to the Lord a sense of of desire for the experience of his love and his purposes in your life. Bring to the Lord your desire to experience his fullness and the presence of God in your life once again. And let's trust that the Lord wants us to experience this fellowship of the Trinity that we talked about this morning. As we pray, if you want to come, go ahead and come. Otherwise, you can go in God's grace and in his peace. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the grace you've given us through your Son. And we thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who's at work in us. And we pray that today you would help us as we've meditated on who you are to experience the reality of your presence and the grace of your love more than we ever have. We pray that you would give us unity that you would teach us to walk in real fellowship and relationship with you, and that as we think about who you are, that you would teach us to be secured in your love, that we might know your freedom and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Church, the altars are open. If you need to go, please go respectfully. You can greet one another in the lobby or in donut hour. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you again soon. Grace and peace.